Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it is open, as it is opened and now proclaimed and heralded in its native language, which is announcing, because it is news, I pray that we would receive it as the good news that it is. Lord, I pray that we would be comforted, we would be warned, we would be encouraged, humbled, um, and shaped by this, your word. I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. So we return now uh, to our, our walk through the book of Isaiah. We've been walking through the book of Isaiah for not quite a year yet. And uh, one of the things that we've seen is that Isaiah gives prophecies. He gives short-term prophecies um, that prove his long-term prophecies. So ultimately, Isaiah is prophesying that God will bring a Messiah. He will bring uh, the king, the son of David. This man will redeem Zion. He will treat Zion like his own bride, like his own flesh and blood. He will treat her um, with great love and affection and steadfastness, and he will produce for her an eternal kingdom. He will make the entire world as if it were the place of their honeymoon. Nothing Nothing will be left in creation other than that which glorifies God and makes, the, makes eternal life wonderful for his bride. He's promised these things over and over again. The short-term promises of those things is that, that Zion Israel was currently in exile in Babylon, and he's promising that she will return out of exile, out of Babylon. He will bring her back to her land. He will restore her there. And often, often these prophecies take a special turn. And what does Zion, or the bride of Christ, the people of the Messiah, what do they do while they are waiting for him to restore them? And not only what do they do, but why do they do it? What motivates them to wait for him what may, motivates them to wait in the way he calls them to? We sang a lot of songs today about crowning Christ, crowning him, acknowledging that he is Lord and creator, and he is not just Lord and creator, but he is the king of all things. Now, every king, especially in the ancient world, would be able to pick objects that represent what they think is most amazing about themselves, what they want to be known for. And you think about crowns and robes and scepters and all of these special things that would accompany the royal splendor of a king. And what do you see in these passages in Isaiah chapter 61? We're reading the end of 61 and all of 62. You see that it is the church. It is the church that he holds as the symbol of his greatness as a king. This is his crowning achievement is what he has done for the church. Look at what I did for my bride. Look at what I gave to her. And dear church, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of his bride. That means he intends all of his work to point to what he has done for you. Not what you have done, but what he has done for you. And this is going to be very helpful as we consider motivations for why we should wait for him. 
when sometimes it's painful to wait for him. Why we should be happy to be identified as his church when sometimes the world would see it as a shameful thing to belong to this man from Israel. And so we are going to look, take deep looks at these motivations for what does it look like to wait and why we are to wait. And to do that, you've you've turned to Isaiah 61 already. We're going to read the first two verses of our passage, which is Isaiah 61, verse 10 and 11. So let's read Isaiah 61, verse 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. As far as God's word. Our first point from this section is this. The wedding clothes of the bride and groom are righteousness and praise. The wedding clothes of the bride and groom are righteousness and praise. And you see this passage talking about people being clothed. Did you notice that? There's talking about a bride getting clothed, getting clothes on, and you get, there's a groom, he's getting clothes on. And so specifically, this, this phrase, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me, verse 10, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, the question is, is this speaking specifically about Christ Or is it talking about the church? And actually, faithful theologians are divided on this. Not like it's a big fight that they are angry and they hate each other over this. But the reason is they're divided. Some say, no, this is specifically talking about Christ. Christ is being clothed. He's being clothed to be the Messiah. He's being prepared by God to be the Messiah of the church. This is actually a true statement. If it was specifically about Christ, it would be be saying things that are definitely true that things that other scriptures would affirm. Because in many ways, the Lord God did appoint Christ and give him garments for salvation. One of the garments that Christ had to put on that he didn't have was a human nature. At one point, the Lord Jesus, he was, he was God. He was eternally God. He always existed as God. But he did not have a human nature. He wasn't a human. But God clothed him with a human nature. He gave him human flesh and bones. And he even gave him a human soul so that he could be perfectly fitted to be the Messiah, the husband of the church, to save the church. Because it did need to be a human who did that. Because he did need to have human righteousness. He had to obey God's law as a human. And so you could see, wouldn't that fit this passage? The Lord has appointed, he has anointed me and he has clothed me for this task. Even it goes on in 10b, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Well, who's the bridegroom? Well, wouldn't that be the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the bridegroom of the church. But then it also says, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Okay, so maybe, maybe it's actually talking about the church. Well, that would also be true, wouldn't it? Because the church is also, also clothed in robes by the Lord, isn't she? We read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the Lord God, the Lord Jesus on the cross, he who knew no sin, that means he had no sin of his own, he became sin. 
so that we could be made the righteousness of God. He took our sin, he was clothed with our sin on the cross, and he stood before God clothed in our sins so that he would receive what we deserve for our unrighteousness so that we could be clothed in his righteousness, his royal robes. Brother Luke read for us in Matthew chapter 22 a parable that Jesus talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. What's going to happen when the Lord Jesus comes, when he comes to, to judge the living and the dead, when he comes to save the church, it's, it's proclaimed as a wedding feast. And at this wedding feast, there are people who kind of slip in and they're, no, we're part of the celebration. And then the, the father of the groom looks and he says, you're not wearing wedding clothes. It would have been the custom that wedding clothes would have been given, especially a very, very wealthy man with uh, with a son getting married, he would have actually provided wedding garments for all the guests at the feast. And there was people at that feast who weren't wearing those wedding garments. And he said, what are you, why are you not wearing the wedding garments that I provided for the guests who are invited? And if you remember that passage that Caleb, that, Caleb, that sorry, <laughs> Caleb left us. We have to remember, he left us, he abandoned us. He's in Kenora, we're getting over it. Pray for Kenora and for Caleb. <laughs> Luke read for us, and, and you remember in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 22, there's the father of the bridegroom approaches, and he confronts these, this, this man, and he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man who was in there without a wedding garment was speechless. He had no argument. And dear friends, that is going to be how it is for all those who currently maybe think that there is a God, maybe even believe in Jesus. They think that these things are kind of true. They're Christian-ish. This might even be one of, maybe, maybe you. But who thinks that you are going to be at that feast, you will be welcomed into heaven into God's household based on some of the things that you've done. Maybe you think that your actions are good enough. You think, look, these, you think about actions as, as, a, as a robe, as clothing, and you think, I'm, this should be good enough. I look at my clothes, they're pretty wonderful. I look at my record, it's pretty good. God would accept this. Or maybe you're thinking, well, pfft, look, how dare God judge me? He should just accept me as I am just as I am. He should accept me exactly as I am. I don't, I don't need perfect righteousness to get in here. Kind of, a God would, kind of a God would require perfect righteousness to get to heaven. I don't think that's true. And so I'm just going to, by kind of shaming God into not doing that, I'm going to expect that he's not going to do that. But dear friends, when you stand before the Lord in your own record, maybe it's a record like God can't judge me. I don't need a perfect record. Or maybe you think your record is just good enough. This parable tells you exactly what will happen. You will be speechless when he confronts you. You needed perfect righteousness to be here. You won't argue. You won't be like, no, I didn't. You're like, yeah, I guess I did. And you will not argue that your, your robes, your record is good enough. You won't. You will be speechless. If you think you've got an argument, you won't when you stand before him. Not just that your argument won't work. You won't have one. 
you will agree with God that your own robes are not good enough and that they, God was right to demand this. So what is your only hope? Your friends, your hope is that Christ took your robes and was punished for them on the cross and he freely gives you his. His record given to you and it is a gift given by faith. And in so in this way, the church, the bride of Christ is clothed in royal robes, his royal robes, Christ's royal robes of righteousness. Christ's royal robes of righteousness. And so what we see here as well is that this is not just a contractual relationship between Christ and the church, between the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, and the people whom he saves. It's not like, okay, we have this deal. I have to save you. You have to be saved by me. We've all done this business transaction. When he is comparing it to a marriage, he is saying something that it is more than a contractual relationship. He's not saying that it's less than a contractual relationship. He's not saying it's less than commitment and, and an actual promises and oaths and, and this legal, legally binding relationship. He's not saying it's less than that. He is saying it is that, but it is much more. Marriage is meant to be a covenant of delight. Marriage is meant to be a covenant of delight, to be delightful to your spouse and to delight in your spouse. It's not just having needs met. Look, we need to do this if we're going to have a family or have children and grandchildren. And No, no. It's more than that. It is a contractual relationship, but it is a covenant of delight. And I wondered if you noticed the garments that are provided. He provides garments, garments, the robes of righteousness and praise. Did you notice that? As we read through, you're going to see it again as we continue on 62. He provides these, these robes are called the, righteous, the robes of righteousness and of praise. Now, wedding garments are supposed to do and to, to show something. There are, they identify the bride and the groom. You're supposed to know who the groom is and who the bride is by what they're wearing, right? This is why you're not supposed to wear a white dress to a wedding if you're a guest. That would be insulting. The, the wedding garments are supposed to identify the bride and the groom. Not only that, they're meant to be pleasant. They're meant to be pleasing to the other person. They're meant to be enjoyed by the other person. And so when we see that the robes, first of all, are robes of righteousness that God has given to the church, we have to think about what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Well, righteousness, another synonym, could be holiness, right? It could be obedience to God's law. Righteousness actually is that which lines up with God's character. So for me to say what God loves, it's actually a synonym for righteousness. The things that God loves that are, are, that reflect what, his, what is in his heart, who he is. Righteousness, another synonym for righteousness, is goodness. So righteousness is that which lines up with God's character, that which pleases God, that which God enjoys. God enjoys righteousness. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, this is a reflection of God's character. What does he love? Who is he? What does his heart look like? What does he enjoy? And so we say that righteousness is, is that. And so when we say here, when, when Isaiah says that the, 
the clothing that the bride is wearing is clothing of righteousness, that means it is she is clothed in a record that God enjoys. She's clothed in things that please the Lord. And what is shocking, though, in this is that we've read a lot about Zion. We've read a lot about the church already in Isaiah. And we know a lot about her. And we know that she's full of wickedness. We know that the church has tons and tons and tons of sin. And so this reminds us of the gift of having our sin removed from us and having Christ's righteousness applied to us. The gift is not merely that we don't go to hell. The gift is not merely that we are forgiven for our sins. The gift of the gospel is much greater than that. The gift of the gospel is also that we stand with God wearing an enjoyable record. We are enjoyable to him. Not because of what we have done, but because what Christ has done. It is a pleasing thing, those things that Christ has done for us. You've all been in a situation, maybe you haven't, I have, where you're in a room and you know that the people there are just putting up with you. <laughs> Maybe it's today. Uh, they're, they're not pushing you out of the room. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to kill you. But they don't enjoy the fact that you're there. It is part of our human nature, our God-given human nature, to want people to enjoy our presence. Not just people be, be okay with people, not for people merely to be okay with us being there, but for people to enjoy that we are in a place. Isn't that true? Dear friends, this is part of the gift of the gospel. Is that Christ has not just made us acceptable to God, but pleasing to him. So that means that you currently, if your faith is in Christ, you currently stand before God with Christ's righteousness. That means he enjoys you. He is not necessarily pleased with all your actions. We're going to get there. But you, he enjoys. You, he loves. You, he's not merely tolerating. But because you are covered in Christ's royal robes, that means that he has made you someone who is not just tolerable, but enjoyable to God. In the same way, he says, he compares this to the way that a groom enjoys a bride. What a wonderful image that God has created for us in the gospel to encourage us. Now, he's, the, the church is also paired with, uh, the, the garments of righteousness are also paired with the garments of praise. So if the garments of righteousness express what God is pleased by, they express God's pleasure in the relationship, then the garments of praise express the church's Enjoyment of God, the church's pleasure in God, right? So you have both enjoying each other. Because what is praise other than declaring what you love about what the other person has done? So he has clothed the church with the garments of praise. They are grateful. They are thankful. They are happy to be the one upon whom the Lord has set his affection. Not, of course, because we deserve it, but because we wonder and have awe and gratitude that we have been chosen for such an honor, that he would choose us to set his affections on, and not only that, to make us pleasing and enjoyable 
that God would set his joy upon us. And so praise is expressed in loving actions. It's also expressed in song and in prayer and meditation on the goodness of God. Scripture often uses this as a motivation for us to live holy lives. In Revelation chapter 19, as the church is, it says the church, it compares the church, of course, again to a bride and and says that she's sort of getting ready for the wedding and and she's putting on on garments and she's dressing herself for the wedding. You can picture this this bride in a back room with her uh, her, uh, maids of honor. And, and maybe her mom, and they're sort of getting the jewelry, and they're getting her ready for this. And, and the Bible compares this to the way the church is to get ready for Christ's return. Now, we know that she's clothed in Christ's righteousness, right? So she's not going to be accepted as the bride because of what she has done. But even so, she really wants to do things now that are pleasing to her husband, pleasing to her groom. And so the Bible often Makes, uh, gives this as a motivation for why we would want to do righteous works. If these righteous deeds don't earn our salvation, if they don't earn God's love for us, if they don't earn God's faithfulness to us, why, why would we do them anyways? And the answer is that because they are pleasing to God. Because we love him. Because Christ is the groom and we want him to enjoy it. We want him to enjoy our actions. So dear church, let this be a motivation for you. When you are tempted to turn to sin because the pleasure that sin might promise you, remember the love and affection that the Lord Jesus has for us. Remember the joy that he has in the church. And then remember how wonderful it is to do things that he enjoys. This is a wonderful motivation. We don't love him in order to get him to love us. We love him because he first loved us. And this kind of obedience, this praise and righteousness, this life of praise and and righteousness is primarily shown in ordinary, boring type obedience. The getting up when your alarm clock rings, getting ready for the day, and just ordinarily, faithfully carrying out your tasks, whether that be as a child going to school or a young man or woman preparing for, uh, for life as an adult, or whether that is for a single man or woman or a married man or woman. Even those ordinary things, when you're keeping your commitments and living a life that it might seem very boring and ordinary. It might not seem very flashy or enjoyable. Dear friends, when you are doing that, when you're living that kind of a life and repenting of sin, you need to see that Christ sees that as wonderful and beautiful. He sees that as if you're putting on jewelry for him. He loves that. So we have to remember from this first bit of the passage, first of all, there is no acceptance by God without Christ's garments of righteousness. You would be a fool to think that yours are sufficient. Do not wait until that day when you realize that you will have no argument before God. And so by faith in Christ, repent of your sin and turn to Christ 
and you receive his royal robes of righteousness. And then wearing those royal robes, turn from sin, pursue righteousness, not in order to save yourself, but in order to do things that Christ enjoys because you love him because he first loved you. The second point we're going to find in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 62. 1 to 5, sorry. The Lord Jesus changes the name of his bride. Let's read 1 to 5 of 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your king, of your God, sorry. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your son shall marry you. And as the, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you, thus far God's word. It's hard to separate this one from the previous section, isn't it? Because we're talking about righteousness again. We're talking about garments. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about the enjoyment of the bride and the groom together, the, the joy that comes to her because of what he has done and the fact that he enjoys this. And yet here we see he seals it with names. What's special about a name? What's special about a name? Now, if you remember junior high or that age, one of the things that I remember uh, is that people would often try to give themselves their own nicknames. You know, well, what, you know, what do people say about you? And then they'd say something that nobody said about them. But it's what they wanted people to say about them, you know? Oh, you know, I'm the smart one. Nobody said that you were the smart one. I'm the guy, one who's really good at basketball. Nobody said that you were the one who's really good at basketball. Um, A name is something that goes beyond just something that you have done, but maybe something that you are known for. You see in verse 4, you shall no more be termed. I love that. It's another way of getting at that. You shall no, re, no more be termed forsaken. It's something that you are known for, something that so characterizes you that it becomes your name, your nickname, the thing that you are known for. It's one thing to have done something. It's another thing to, ha to be known for. The other thing about a name is that it's often official. It's not just a nickname or what you're known for, but names are often very official. We can see this when a child is adopted. Their name is changed. You have new name. It's an official thing. It's a designation that that child is now an heir. And so God is, is committed to changing the names of his bride, the church, or Zion. And now we can think of this, and the passage encouraged us to think about it in two ways. Our name before God and our name before the world. The church's name and, and what God thinks of the church and what the world thinks of the church. And he is committed, as part of the responsibility of the Messiah, he's committed to changing both of those things. So what about his bride? What about her name? He says, for her sake, he will act. For her sake, he will do something to change her name. For her sake, he will move. Now, let's look at the names that he removes. What she was known for. 
And that is, first of all, we see the word forsaken. You were known as forsaken. You were termed that way. That was the right way for people to look at you as forsaken. And first of all, we can see this in the eyes of God. Because of her sin, she deserved to be called forsaken. This is something, this is her name was forsaken, rejected by God, punished and and bearing the wrath of God. Somebody who deserved God's punishment, deserved to be treated as an enemy. That was her reputation based on her works. And how does the Lord Jesus take away that name of forsaken from the church and give her a better name? What did the Lord Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bears our forsakenness before God so that we could have what the Lord would think about Christ. He took our name in that sense before God and he gave us his name. And what is the opposite of this in this passage? The Lord delights in you. So he's committed to changing our name, what God thinks of when he thinks of us before God, our status before God. He's committed to changing that, but he's also committed, as you see here, he's committed to changing our name in regards to the world. Peter gets at this in 1 Peter 4. Let's read 1 Peter 4, verse 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the church, uh, suffered in the church, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thus far, God's word. And so his work, the Lord Jesus' work, is not done until her name in heaven and on earth has been changed. Changed from forsaken to my delight is in her. And we see that very often through the church's history, the the world will look at the church and find the church to be very unglorious. Now, firstly, the world might be able to point to some legitimate sin from the church and say, well, that would make her rejectable by God. And God obviously doesn't love her. And the cross reminds us, yes, a lot of the things that the world will say about us, we deserve. When they point to our sin, sometimes they're right to point to our sin, but our sin is forgiven. Christ was punished for it. He was shamed for it. But often, as Peter reminds us here in 1 Peter 4, often the church is looked at as forsaken by the world, not because of sin, but because of righteousness. If we think about the bride getting ready for, uh, for, to walk down the aisle and the, the, the things that she's adorning herself with, the world is watching saying, those are really ugly things that you're doing. It's really ugly that you are committed to God's view of marriage. 
God's view of gender, God's view of life and death, God's view of work, God's view of honesty, God's view of and on and on and on. And the world thinks those are really despicable. You should be ashamed that you are willing to agree with those things. And they think it's ugly what the bride is putting on, those things that she is doing in obedience, in love for her groom, the Lord Jesus. But there will come a day when the Lord returns and they will see that the church's sin is paid for. But they will also see that those things that they once thought were despicable and the church should be ashamed of, confessing the gospel, repenting of sin, agreeing with what God says is sin, those things that the world once thought was despicable at the church, they will now agree those were good things. Those were wonderful things. Those were things that the God of all the universe enjoyed. And we were sinful to mock the church for those things. See, Christ is committed to changing the name of his bride. First, by taking away her shame and replacing it with his name and reputation. But then also, giving his spirit that she would actually now be empowered to do works that are pleasing to God, not to save herself. As soon as you do a work in order to save yourself, it's not a good work. It's a disgusting work in God's sight. But to do a good work in order to show God that you love him because he first loved you, this is a work that is pleasing to God and he empowers us with his spirit to do this. That takes us to our next point, which we'll find in verses 6 to 9. The waiting bride has the privilege of praying for a feast sworn to be celebrated. Let's read 6 to 9 of 62. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine by, for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Thus far God's word. One of the ways that Zion or the bride or the church is marked as she's waiting for this consolation waiting for the Lord Jesus to rescue her is that she is marked with constant prayer. And in this passage, praying, the prayers of the church are likened to watchmen on a wall of a city. You see this? If you have watchmen on the wall of a city, if this was a good city, if this is a wise city, and if you were in charge of the watchmen on the city, how many hours in a day would you have them take off? Zero, right? You want to have watchmen on the wall at all times. And we see here, based on the context of Isaiah, the rest of Isaiah, we see that these watchmen are looking, are, 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 they have to have watchmen for a couple of reasons. First of all, Zion or the church is always under attack. She is an enemy that desperately hates her. 
and hates uh, her God, hates her Savior. But there's a second reason why she's always waiting. And that, that reason is waiting for her rescuer to come to the city. Waiting for the return of the king. Waiting for the bridegroom to return. And I want you to see some things are characterized here. They are never silent. Did you see that? In verse 6, they shall never be silent, these watchmen. And what are they doing? They are putting the Lord in remembrance. His return is always on their mind. They will not let him forget it. They're always, always calling on God to return, to keep his promises. They're constantly saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We want you to return. The Lord Jesus even put this in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The church is marked as she's waiting for a longing for the Lord Jesus to return. And dear church, we are often, often distracted to the point where the Lord Jesus' return is not something we're actually looking forward to in the moment. In fact, we're kind of hoping maybe he'd delay it a little bit because we're kind of enjoying this right now. But the church regularly praying that the Lord return is very good for us to do. It's very good for us to do this. Did you notice it says that we're giving God no rest? We're giving him no rest. Did you see that? Verse 7, give him new rest, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Well, it's a good thing that God does not need any rest, okay? So that's a good thing. We're not in danger of, oh, God's really tired and he wants to go to sleep, but we're not letting him. We're not letting him get to sleep. He wants to, but we're not letting him. We keep waking him up in the middle of the night. God never sleeps. And this is saying that God does not ever get tired of us calling for the Lord Jesus to return, calling for the church to be saved by the Lord Jesus, waiting and longing and praying for him to return. It's not he who needs to remember these promises. It's us who needs to remember them. It is very good for our souls to be praying that he keep these promises. Otherwise, our souls will be very keen to trust God to promises that he's not actually made. It is good to ask God for things that he's not promised. That is good. He's told us to ask, uh, he told us to ask him for daily bread. He's told us to ask for things like healing. He's, asked, he's told us to ask for things like the provision, uh, the provision of jobs and, and money and all those things. He has promised to hear all those prayers and respond as a perfect father, but he has not ever promised that all of your prayers for healing of cancer or of other diseases would be granted. He's told you to ask and trust that he will give the right answer, but he has made promises. And we're very prone to try to trust God for promises he's not actually made. And this is a really good remedy that we would pray for God to keep promises he's actually made. And some might say, why in the world 
Why in the world would we pray for things that God has already promised will happen? Things that are guaranteed to come true. And the response that seems to be coming from these pages is, isn't that the most wonderful thing to pray for? Isn't that the most amazing and great and delightful thing to pray for? Promises that will certainly come true. Things that will certainly happen. This is our privilege. And yet these are actual prayers. They're not just us having self-talk. Okay, we got to remember that Christ is coming back, so we got to pretend we're talking to God about it, but we're really just talking to ourselves. No. He calls these prayers, and he does respond to them. The fact that he has promised to respond to them doesn't make them any less real prayers. It has pleased him that one of the ways he would return is in response to the prayers of his people. He is ordained that he will respond that he will return. But what else has he ordained? That the church would pray for him to return. And so we see that this is both a promise and a command. It's both a promise that the church would be waiting for him while praying for him to return. It's both a promise and it's a command. The Lord Jesus' responsibility as a Messiah is to have a bride that is waiting for him and who prays for him to return and whom he will respond to those prayers. And we see that this was true in the first advent. This is true in the first advent. Do you remember what happened when the Lord Jesus Shortly after he was born, his parents took him to the temple to dedicate him, right? He was the firstborn of Mary, and so he had to be dedicated with special sacrifices. And you remember that there's two elderly people who met them there, Simeon and Anna. And both of these people were said to be part of a group of Israelites that are merely described as the people who are waiting for the consolation of Zion, waiting and praying that the Messiah would come. And how wonderful, how wonderful that both Anna and Simeon in the temple got to see the consolation of Israel that they were waiting for. And they showed that they were waiting for it by praying for it. And God sent the consolation of Israel in response to their prayers. So church, let us realize the honor of being called those who faithfully pray, called to be those who faithfully pray for the Lord's certain return. He who has called us is faithful, and he will surely answer that prayer. Our last point is this, and we're going to get it from the last three verses. The invitation to the feast is to be plainly announced in all the earth. Isaiah 62, 10 to 12. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Thus far God's word. First, we see that the invitation to the wedding feast is to be plainly announced. This sense of plainness and, and clearness is, is what is sort of built into the fact that there's get rid of all those stones. 
Make the pathway clear. Don't put any, any, if there's any boundaries in the way, get rid of them. Make way for people to return. And how is it that people are going to be called to the Lord Jesus? It says, verse 10, the end of verse 10, lift up a signal over the peoples. And we've seen over and over and over in Scripture, the signal that calls the people is not the law of God. It's not getting God's view of marriage right. It's not the signal that calls the people. It's good. It's true. The signal that calls the people is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in John 12, verse 32. And I, this is Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's to be plainly announced. No obstacles in the way. Some of the obstacles that are typically put in the way of the gospel is that people say that you are to trust in Christ and do these things and you will be saved. Where people's own works are seen as part of the thing that they need to do to get to Zion, get to Christ. And when we see that all the obstacles are removed, we see that was because of the work of Christ and that Christ alone is how a person gets saved. The writer of Hebrews also mentions obstacles. But these aren't obstacles that other people put in our way and you know, teaching us a false gospel, but obstacles that we might put in our own way. See this in Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here, this invitation, this, uh, this command to remove all obstacles, all hindrances, is also another motivation for us to live lives that are holy. And when we sin, which we will, to repent of sin, to lay it aside, confess it to God. Don't justify it and think of all the reasons why it's fine for you to do that. And I need to keep this burden on my back. It's fine for me to run with this boulder on my back. Why are you judging me for running with this boulder on my back? Don't be a fool and make arguments for why you should be able to carry boulders. Turn away from sin. Set it aside. Lay it down. Pray that the Lord Jesus would forgive that and remove it off of you. Run with endurance that race, looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So the invitation to the wedding feast is to be announced very plainly. No obstacles in the way. Remove all of those. But it's also to be announced in all the earth. And the reason this is, is as we've seen in Isaiah, that when the Messiah has finished his work, the boundaries of Zion would be the ends of the earth. And we see this when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and in Jerusalem has been given to me. Didn't say that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he's also sworn to have a bride comprised of many people 
from every single different tribe and language and dialect and nation. And you would not know it. You would not know who would respond to this call of the gospel ahead of time. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know by looking at what they look like or what language they speak. You wouldn't know by looking at what they wear. You wouldn't even know by looking at their actions, whether their actions are holy or not. You wouldn't know it. The only way you know it is by freely and clearly proclaiming the gospel to every single person. And God will identify who are his by the ones who hear it and believe. And then their name and robes are replaced with Christ's. So church, let us enjoy the wonder and beauty of being the bride of Christ. And with his strength, let us wait for him while doing things that please him, enjoying him, enjoy being the bride and praying for his certain return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that marriage is just a a small little picture, a parable of your love for the church where you've not just given her a savior, you've not just given her an example or a king, but you've given her a husband, somebody who she is united to, to becoming one flesh, where his actions actually do count as hers and hers are counted as if they were his. And we are grateful that Christ's commitment and faithfulness, steadfast love to the church is greater than the faithfulness and steadfast love of the most faithful husband. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being your bride, of being clothed in Christ's righteousness, in, in, in a righteousness, in, in what pleases you, that we get to be the people who you delight in. Let us not ever forget how wonderful that is that we would often take time and wonder at how wonderful it is to be the ones whom God delights in. And Father, I pray you'd make us faithful in prayer, not to change your mind, not to convince you of things you don't want to do, but because you do delight to do those things and you do delight to answer those prayers. And so Father, I pray that you'd make us faithful to wait, to pray, and to proclaim the gospel, yes, to ourselves, but to anyone and everyone. And I pray that you do this in Jesus.